a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hello, my friends. Welcome. How are you? So well. Wonderful. So well. Good. And what are you consuming uh, for your beverage today? I made myself a new bevy that one of my friends suggested. She makes her own jams and like charcuterie and stuff. So she gave me some of her rhubarb champagne jam, like uses actual champagne in there. She does some really fun stuff. But she suggested doing a gin and jam. And I'd <gasps> never heard of that before. So I bought some gin just to do this with the end of my jam. and put a little bit of berry LaCroix in there to like finish it off. And it is smacking. It is a great summer drink. Oh my gosh. So refreshing. So delicious. I I just love that you called it a bevy instead of a beverage. That's This one feels like a bevy. New bevy. Who dis? New bevy. Very (laughs) powerful. Steven, what are you? Uh, Key lime LaCroix. This is a staple in my fridge at this point. And it is hitting the spot right now. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I am consuming two beverages. Uh, My first one is I got a second uh, helping of that cranberry raspberry lemonade. Uh, And then I also have I found a little tiny bottle of this like sparkling white wine. And so I poured myself a little glass um, and I poured myself a little glass in celebration because today (gasps) we're discussing my recommendation for ordination. Yeah. All right. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and one of the things that I wanted, I guess, to talk about was the concept of being ordained. And one of the things that many people, especially like my friends and I who are on the ordination track, we have talked about is the idea of who does the ordaining? Is it the bishop or is it God who ordains you? Uh, So, you know, just throwing out those deep questions. So I guess I I really don't know how to even start because I feel like we could just answer that question and be like, okay, we're done. But I want to talk more about it. So I I don't know where to start. That's my dilemma. Well, one thing I'm immediately struck by, even not knowing like a ton of like what your process was like, and I would actually like to a little bit more about that but what i'm struck by is the academization i'm just making up that word but even that is like an academization that i'm I'm struck by like the nice (laughs) the like institutionalizing of ordination in certain denominations compared to more like uh, like almost casualness of it being treated in other denominations Like, for instance, Mm. I was like following, I don't even remember where this was. It it was probably on Twitter. I was following this one guy that was talking about how in his, no, it was TikTok. He was talking about how in his previous church context, 
Like he almost felt like targeted as like a young, hip, charismatic dude. There was like definitely this pressure to like become a pastor. And like you, you like you all had to go through very little requirements to like really become a pastor on staff in that context. So I think mm. looking at you going through this ordination process, it's really interesting seeing that like very clear distinction, even just within American Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't even really think of that. Yeah, I grew up going to churches that it was basically like, if you have an MDiv, then you are ordained. Like, then you are qualified to be the pastor. Oh, yeah, same. Come to think of it. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't like you, Emily, in your case, you have an MDiv, and then you go through the whole process within uh, the Methodist church to be ordained as an elder in the church. Yeah, the church I grew up at, it was basically like, oh, he just graduated Dallas Theological Seminary. He can be the pastor now. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. Maybe I shouldn't be a Methodist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it certainly seems easier. It seems a lot oh, it, more decentralized. It definitely is more complex in the Methodist realm, for sure. Yeah, because this has been like a multi-step process for you, right? Yes. So this is... um. You know, I'd shared it on Instagram. This is nine years coming to fruition, which is just like thinking about that, like, wow, nine years of my life. That's just been a whirlwind. Um, so basically, I, I have to even think back nine years. Well, I can say the very first thing I had to do was I had to discern my call. And that's like a formal. We have a checklist and everything. It's wonderful. And that's literally the first oh, step wow. is like discern your call um and once you have discerned you get in touch with your district superintendent your pastor at the church maybe that you attend and you say like hey i've discerned my call i feel called into ministry and i want to pursue ordination the track then diverges later but the initial steps are you talk to your ds or your pastor and you meet with your district committee which is basically the churches in that district have like a panel and they will see uh, if you are ready, they not fit, but ready uh, for ministry and ready to pursue ordination. And so that happened when I was, that was going on my senior year of high school. So then when I went off to college, I entered what's called the candidacy process and the candidacy process is where you go under a lot of papers and a lot of interviews. Um, they do a psych evaluation. They do a medical examination. Whoa. Yeah. And let me tell you how bogus uh, that form was <laughs> because, A, half those questions did not apply to me because either, A, I'm not a man, or, B, I'm not over the age of 65. So oh. some of those questions you're just like, oh, okay, N A N A N A, but you still have to fill out the form. Um, so I had a medical exam, I had a psych evaluation, I had papers that I had to answer. I was required to read a book about like discerning my call and what ordination means and blah blah blah. Um, and then once I completed all of those, the DCOM would say, yes, we approve you as a candidate to pursue ordination. So then all through college, that was all happening. And I'm basically giving you the Cliff Notes version of this because I could talk for hours. 
So once I was approved as a candidate, I was then ready to go on to the next step, which is commissioning. And that was in my time in seminary. I was preparing more papers, having more interviews, and answering more specifically like the book of disciplines questions for um, seeking ordination. And from there, the board of ordained ministry was who I had to talk to. And I was no longer affiliated with the DCOM. It was more of the bigger governing body of the ordination committee. And so once I was approved for recommendation, then the clergy had to vote on that recommendation. So they voted and that was uh, June 18th of 2020. And then I was appointed to serve at Cody. And for those two years, so the two years that I've been here so far, I've been what's called a provisional elder. And it's basically like a probationary period of like it's like student teaching like you're you're testing the waters and you're learning everything you can before you take the big exam or whatever and so then at the end of the two years which was this march i had to go again before the board of ordaining ministry and they had to vote as to whether or not they recommend me for being an elder in full connection it's a fancy title Um, And so they did recommend me. And so now what happens is on my birthday, June 17th, the clergy of the entire conference. So the churches of Montana, Wyoming, one church in Idaho, Colorado and Utah, they all come together and they vote on the board's recommendation. And there's nine of us who are seeking ordination in this particular conference. And if they vote yes, um, which they need three fourths majority. And I've never heard of no one not being voted against um but it can happen you could be which is why we have to be very careful in this stage where we are we can't say that we are ordained we have to say we are recommended because the clergy take it very seriously on that vote so they vote on the recommendation and if i am approved if i am voted into then on the following day uh in helena Um, where conference is held, they will have an ordination service where the bishop will lay hands on me and then I get to receive and finally wear a stole. And what's really cool is you can have an elder. They don't have to be a part of the conference. They can be in any other conference in the United Methodist Church, but they get to come and they have to be fully ordained and they get to bless you and give you your stole and place it on you. So I'm actually going to ask my friend Scott McCurdy, who did Alex and I's wedding. He helped me through the candidacy process. We are still very much in touch with each other. I'm going to ask if he'll be my elder that will help uh, bless me and place the stole on my shoulders. So that is what we're waiting for is the big moment where I get to wear this piece of fabric (laughs) and look official. Because let me tell you, on Sunday mornings when I have to wear a robe, I just look like a really cute angel. Like, (laughs) (laughs) because I'm not allowed to wear a stole yet. So... If I'm voted and rec- and they take up that recommendation, then I can finally wear a stole and I'll look less like an angel and more like a pastor on Sunday mornings when I'm robed. Huh. <laughs> so that's like the quickest way I could possibly explain the ordination process. So all of that took nine years for me wow. to do. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want this to sound like I'm just uh, ignoring those nine years and asking a glib question but beyond the stole does anything else like qualitatively change in the way you can perform your job 
Or no. are you pretty much doing what you've been doing since you moved to Cody? Yes. Okay. It's just it's just now I like I basically have like full voting rights now as well. So like right now as a provisional elder, I can vote on certain things, but not everything. Mm. Okay. So now I'll have full rights. So you would be voting on like the next round of people who are recommended like yes. at the next conference. Correct. If you were some for some reason going to be Josh, voted don't you against. dare speak it into the universe. Don't you dare speak <laughs> it into the universe. But like say <laughs> so like you said that you've never heard of anyone being voted against. But like say someone was like voted down for ordination, would they still mm -hmm. be allowed to like be a provisional elder? Yes. Yeah, so they basically would have to start that portion of the process over again. Oh, so it would, it would basically be like delayed a year or what's happened before, not with ordination, but with commissioning is people have been voted on to be discontinued from the ordination track. And you can actually file an appeal um, and fight against that. Huh. And so that's why usually like I will say it is a very daunting and frustrating process, but it is a very good process because it does in a way, wean out people who either are not ready for ministry or doing it for the wrong reasons or exactly, like, uh, exactly. Or and that's so it's not good about them that they shouldn't be in that position, like that kind of stuff. Right. And so if you get past commissioning and you're a provisional elder and you are ready to pursue ordination as an elder in full connection, then the board is going to know you know, like, yes, this person has been doing great. And if for any reason, like if there had a there has to be like a huge scandal that happens basically during your provisional two years for you to not be recommended, like that would be my that would be my guess, because mm. the board has been following you from the very moment you talked to your DS, like the DS talks to the board of ordaining ministry. So they are aware, like they are following you and ensuring that like you are on this journey and you're on this journey for good. And so they know like pretty much like what you're doing in your capacity to serve and how you're serving. So if mm. you get all the way to commissioning and then you're a provisional elder and then something horrendous happens, then they won't recommend you. They're not mm. going to just be like, well, we'll let it slide. Like, no, they're going to they're gonna know. So it's a very, um, it's a very interesting process mm. for sure. I don't want this to sound minimizing either, but... <laughs> Is there something you have in mind that comes after your birthday? Huh. Like, is Emily going to go get a PhD or something? Or Oh, my God. Uh, I had someone on my reading team. Um, so we have what's called reading teams for ordination, and it's people who are on the boarded of, board of ordained ministry. They split off into groups, and those groups are assigned ordinands, which is what I would be. I would be considered an ordinand. And they are assigned your readings. And they get to read all your paperwork and everything. And I had someone from my reading team, like reading over all my papers and everything. And someone from my congregation who was talking with my reading team suggested that I go get a PhD. <laughs> so wow. I'm not the first. <laughs> so not the first. And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I'm ready for a PhD. <laughs> no, that's fair. It is such a process from what I've heard. No, okay, seriously. that word that you used, ordinand, is that like, Similar mm -hmm. to the word reverend? Like, is that a title replacement? No. Oh, okay. An ordinand is one who is seeking ordination. Mm. So will you have any title change? Like, No. 
I will still be a reverend. Does Methodism have a right reverend? I've seen that some places. No. Oh, okay. So like the only other like title change for you would be like if you got a PhD and like you therefore had a different degree or if you like mm-hmm. like were elected to a different type of office like bishop. Or right. Something? So I could. Be, yeah. So I could be like a district superintendent or I could be a bishop. Oh, wow. Hmm. And the only the only um, prerequisites, I guess, f- for being a bishop is you just have to be uh, either. An, I think you can be an elder or a deacon, either or. But you just have to be in good standing with the Methodist Church. <laughs> huh. So, like, in 10 years, like, I could be a bishop. I don't want to be like I, I'm I am so <laughs> far away from even considering that. Um, but like you're like the clergy vote on that. Like they would recommend like. For example, they could say, oh, we recommend Emily as bishop in like 2040 or whatever. And yeah. I'm really curious, like now that you're at this point and you're like kind of looking forward, but you're also like looking behind like the last nine years has obviously been like such a process. And honestly, I can like respect a good slow process. Like I think that there's a lot of pros to it. Like we were just we just got done with our uh, live patron event where we discussed like our Mars Hill bonus episode and like so many different tangents. And I feel like one of the things we talked about was like the example of comparing people who've fallen in ministry uh, early in their career versus later in their career and how like clearly just saying that someone who rose to power too quickly like isn't enough because like people have been in ministry for like 40 years and have like Mm. gone through a slow process and like have still caused a lot of problems and a lot of harm. Sure. So my question for you is, (laughs) looking back over the last nine years, what is Mm -hmm. something that you would like to see changed about the process that you went through? Oh, my gosh. That is literally, Josh, that is the question that all of us ordinands were asking ourselves (laughs) when we were all together. Um, For one, I think having a standard is great. Like that needs to stay the same. But that standard needs to acknowledge that people other than white, heterosexual, cisgender males are seeking ordination. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have we have some individuals who are like Tongan or people who are in the LGBTQIA plus community. And, you know, when their reading teams say, oh, okay, like when you submit your papers, like this is how you should sound. So you get in and then. Basically, after that, like, be yourself like, no, you should be yourself from the very beginning. And that should not be the thing that sets you back from being ordained. Now, I'm not saying that that's a reality. I'm just saying, like, that has been known to happen in other conferences and and friends of mine that has been their experience. Um, And so I think having a process that welcomes individuality is needed. It's not enough just to say, answer these questions, make sure you say the right things, and then you can tweak it from there. I think we should be able to tweak it from the very beginning if that's how we truly believe. If they are things that go against Methodism, that's <laughs> then like, okay, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be ordained in the Methodist church. But if they are, if they are answering the questions in a way that a Methodist would, and they are still holding true to their identity to who they are, I don't think that should be the thing that sets you apart from being ordained. And also, the, just the communication should be better. Like, 
they put a lot of pressure on the person seeking ordination, which is great. Mm-hmm. But then when that person is trying to fulfill a task and then there's no response and you're just kind of left hanging, um, sometimes like literally you're like, I don't know what's happening. Um, it makes you want to give up the process. Isn't that the best practice for ministry in life, though? Oh, my God, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stab you. (laughs) But like you can't get anything. You can't get anything done when you send out an email. And then like two weeks later, you send out that same email. And then two weeks later, someone finally replies and says, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you that this person's no longer associated with this part of your process. Here's the new person that you should call, you know. It's like when you're and the other thing is, is if you miss a deadline for something, you have to wait another year. Whoa. And that's not worth it. Like if you send in your papers and you no one told you that that person is no longer the person you send your papers to and you now have to start and wait another year. That's that just that makes you feel unworthy. You know, it Mm. really sets you down and you just feel incomplete because you worked so hard to get a step done on this checklist and then to be told oh sorry like it was something on our end but it's still like it's the consequence is still on you that to me can be unfair for people Mm. Mm. emily i'm curious to know if or what are your thoughts on ordination being like do you think something spiritual or metaphysical is happening or do you feel like it's like another step through symbolism toward like i don't know authority over the church or as a part of the governing body of the church um Mm -hmm. because like i said at the beginning the the pastor i grew up with you know he was voted in as pastor because he had an mdiv or was at least pursuing one and then he like finished it a couple of years into being the pastor or something. But it was clear like, oh, well, he's educating himself and he's trying to grow, you know, mm-hmm. get some very tangible skills, I guess. But sure. I think, you know, in the churches I grew up in, ordination felt like it held symbolic weight more than it did like anything like actually spiritual was happening. Yeah. Yeah, I would say it's more symbolic. Okay. You know, and I think what's interesting is at least what I love about the Methodist church is there are multiple ways that you can be a pastor and there are different tracks that you can pursue if you want to be ordained. And kind of like what I had said when we had recorded the um, Mars Hill bonus episode with the patrons, um, the Methodist church for a while had this weird hierarchy with elders and deacons and you know, you should be an elder and deacons just do other things other than filling the pulpit and they were seen as lesser than. Mm. Um, But that's totally changing. And what I love about the Methodist Church now is just because you are ordained and you're now an elder in full connection or you decided to go a completely different route and you just want to be a local licensed pastor, you're still serving in your call. And that's what I love is like you can pursue your call in this way, or you can pursue your call in this other way. There's no like right or wrong way. Like you're still fulfilling your call and there's just multiple ways of doing that. And I know for me, like 
I wanted to pursue the formal ordination because I knew I was going to seminary. And I was like, well, if I'm already doing this step, like I might as well just finish off the checklist and like really (laughs) have it come to fruition that way. Yeah. Because like I know plenty of local licensed pastors who all they did was, you know, the local licensing school that's like two and a half months long and then they're serving. And again, they don't have as many voting privileges and like their roles are slightly different. So like they can perform certain things because they're recognized by the bishop, but they there are just some privileges that they don't get to have when they're not formally ordained like in the institution like what I was pursuing. Mm. So when we talk about churches with uh bishops and deacons and certainly there's some hierarchy to the whole thing, right? Even the difference of like ordinance versus fully ordained reverends. This is what people talk about when they talk about the distinction between high church and low church environments. Is that right? Just kind of more of that uh structure to it? Um I've never been clear. Okay, so say that again. Like Um I think of like high church environments being denominations that have a lot more of this kind of formality like you're describing. Mm-hmm. Like even the Catholic Church comes to mind, but just the fact that there, there is a bishop and there's a voting block of people versus I think when people talk about low church is like it's less, um, I think it sometimes gets tied to liturgy, like it's less liturgical and it's more like rock and roll or like a mega church or, or just non-denominational structures, you know. Mm, okay. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because I've I've heard people use the phrase like high church, low church. But honestly, I've never even really been clear as to what exactly that means. And if you don't know what I'm trying to get at either, that gives me some hope at least. (laughs) No, no, no. No, I understand what you're saying. So like when I think of low church, yeah, low church is like a, well, no, I'll start with high church. High church has like more of an emphasis like on ritual and yeah, like liturgy. So a great Mm, example would be like Anglo uh, Catholicism, right? Um, low church would be like Methodists and and Presbyterians where Hmm. it's a contemporary and we have more of the Protestant emphasis. So like we still have ritual, we still have liturgy and all that, but it's not as highly emphasized. Uh, Um, Okay. So like the Episcopal church would be, it's less cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. So like the Episcopal church would be a great middle ground between low church and high church. It would be like middle church. (laughs) Okay. I know of a you? church that's called Middle Church, and I wonder if they chose it for that reason. That's funny. <laughs> Is it an Episcopal church? Um, I actually don't know. I think it might be independent. I'm not actually sure. Interesting. Emily, what do you think that is? That like the uh, the quote unquote high church seems to have more of this like academic, long form process, and the low church seems to have more of a an emphasis on uh like quick growth almost i don't really know what the right word is for it but it's definitely short former like it's shorter form and it's uh more accessible and it's usually less academic like i think that a lot of churches out there will even i've heard of churches that will ordain people that haven't even gone to grad school or seminary Mm. oh that's a good question um i think it's just because you have to understand theologically the rituals. You have to understand 
theologically the dogma and it's not enough just to perform, you know? Um, so I think it's, mm -hmm. you need to like fully understand like what's happening. Like when we say the liturgy for the Eucharist, for example, like you're not just reciting something, you are making a statement about Eucharist. And so you need to have a theological understanding for that. So what better way to explore that than to go and learn and like to pursue seminary and then to pursue ordination and to be asked about Eucharist and be asked about the theology of Eucharist. And so I think the higher the church, the longer the process, because there's a lot you have to unwrap. Like there's a lot that you have to dive into and understand. It's not enough just to perform the action or perform the liturgy or perform the the sacrament you have to actually embody it and you have to understand it and like if you're gonna say the apostles creed and like you're a very high church in that regard like you can't just say it like <laughs> pastors just shouldn't say it like they need to understand what's happening and so that formal mm -hmm. education and that grappling with whatever the governing body is of that denomination like they want to know that you are ready to understand that and ready to tell people of that and whatnot. That's I mean, that would be my interpretation. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense in that uh, those higher quote, like for lack of a better term, those higher churches tend to have a more sacraments like we've talked about that before on our sacrament episode be more like tradition in their liturgy like mm -hmm. the, like you mentioned the creeds like i've been to plenty of churches that haven't thought twice about saying a creed like most mm -hmm. people like i didn't even learn what that was until like what 22 23 so i i get your point in terms of like for the tradition like there's a lot to understand there's a lot to unpack and there's a lot of like theological background that goes into creating what you're doing on a weekly basis or mm. yearly basis like the liturgical calendar and so mm -hmm. maybe that I, I like your point, like maybe that is a reason that some of the uh, more Protestant churches tend to not need that because there's not as much ritual. There's not as much uh, like densely packed theology. It's more like what's a good word for that? Like I was going to say looser, but that sounds weird. Like it's mm. a little bit more like common language. Yeah. Less jargony. Oh, there you go. Yeah. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network. 
Here's a word from one of our sister shows, Keller's Couch. I think that putting yourself in those in those places where the outcome is unknown, it really fosters a whole different kind of creativity. Yeah. Because it, you know, it forces you to use a different part of your brain, which is awesome. Yeah. You know, the, the complacency, you know, can breed a lot of contempt. And in, yeah. in, in a creative outlet, especially like music, um, you know, when you're resting on your laurels, it's very hard for you to progress or feel like you're able to progress. And mm-hmm. you know, pushing yourself in a different direction, or, or you know, you know, it just makes you think differently, even if you don't adapt to it right away. Totally. Josh, Emily, you know how some Christians have an opinion that communion can only be wine and unleavened bread? It's bullcrap. It is. And let me tell you what I prefer. On a nice Sunday quiet morning, I will sip a delightful hot cup of Highline coffee with my buttered toast. And I think that is communion in and of itself. Amen, Amen brother. Amen. You are preaching. What's the better name for our metaphorical coffee shop that we're putting into our podcast church? Is it Holy Grounds or is it Hebrews or is it the Sproly Spirit? (laughs) Well, whichever we choose, just as God pours his Holy Spirit into us, so we pour ourselves a nice mug of coffee. If you want to join us in doing this as well, be sure to order coffee now. We sell it. You can order it at highline.network forward slash shop. I think it's really interesting. I don't know if you've gotten much of this in your ordination process in terms of like coming against you as a female pastor. Like we did a whole episode about that. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. It's great. But what I think is so interesting is when Christians like come against the idea of women pastors even existing, Mm. like that whole argument of like, well, you're not really a pastor when like you clearly have gone through like such a process (laughs) compared to like, (laughs) pastors who like don't even need a graduate degree to like become ordained in their local congregation or whatever. Right. And the fact that like so many people have to come together to like affirm you as a pastor, as a leader, as Mm -hmm. like a trusted individual. Like I get people, I'm not, I don't agree with it, but I get people making a stance of disagreement about like, they don't think this is the way it should be. Yada, yada. Like that can be their opinion. But like just to straight up deny that like, you're not a pastor or like you haven't gone through the requirements. Like, right. I just imagine that would be like such a slap in the face. And maybe you've just like weeded those opinions out of your life, hopefully. But like, mm-hmm. I, uh, I just don't understand that. <laughs> well, and I guess like for those people, they would just say, well, those are just nine years of being illegitimate. Like, that's not a that's not true. You know, like they they would find ways to dispute it. And basically it would come down to like the Methodist tradition like is wrong, you know, like they would find they would find ways to to negate and not recognize my my ordination um, and and the the pursuing that I've done to be ordained. Um, So like everyone's entitled to their opinion and that's totally cool. But I will (laughs) tell you tongue in cheek, (laughs) but I will tell you it is legit and it's happening. So if you don't like it. Oh, well. (laughs) It feels like a no true Scotsman kind of thing. Mm. Like, for instance, like regardless of gender, sex, like you could think that someone should not be a pastor. 
Like, Mm -hmm. I've thought that about people before. Like, ooh, I really disagree with what they're doing. I think their theology is harmful. Like, I don't, like, think that they should keep espousing their opinions or, like, like, we could talk forever about, like, all the controversies that are happening right now about, like, prominent men in leadership that are just, like, falling under scandal because of their actions. Hmm. But, like, I'm not going to deny that they have been pastors. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, people have, like, taken theological and spiritual richness from them. Mm-hmm. And, like, they have led people, but they've also hurt people. But, like, I, like, I also don't see the logic in, like, trying to just illegitimize them as a human showing other people God to, I don't know. Like, what? Yeah. But it's also hard to phrase, too. Like, I get that. Like, even, like, now I'm, like, struggling to be, like, well, I don't want to, like, diminish, like, these people's abuse. But, like, but also that, like, uh, but I also don't want to (laughs) be, also, we've talked forever about this, but I also don't want to be my cosper being, like, but the good fruit. Right, right. So, I don't know. Like, I get that it's hard to verbalize well, but, like, I don't want to, I just don't understand the argument of, like, well, they're not a real pastor. I guess. And I think that's why I like how the board, board of ordained ministry sets up for those seeking ordination. It's like, you know, we're not here to see if we're if you're fit. Like, that's not for us to decide. Like, oh, <laughs> we're okay. here to see if we're here to see if you're ready for ministry. We're here to see if you're ready for ordination. Like, basically, the only people that determine if you're fit is me, like in the work that I put in. And if I'm really cut out for this. Huh. And so, like. Yes, those individuals who abuse their power, like they are pastors, but were they ready would be my question. Can you say more about that between like readiness and fitness? I'm interested in that distinction. So it's more like I uh, for me, I like to think of it as like running a race. Like you could be the most fit individual, like you could train hardcore and be the most fit individual to run a race but you may not be ready to run the race like there could be something that comes up that then it doesn't change your fitness but it it incapacitates you to where you aren't prepared and so like for me like running this race like they were wanting to know if I'm ready like have I been taking the steps and and everything to do that but I determine if I am fit to do it like myself. Everyone else could see I'm doing all these things. I'm answering the questions. I'm doing the interviews. I've answered all the exams and I've done all these extra projects and whatever the case may be. But I determine if I actually am fit to do the job hmm. because I'm the one doing the job. You know, like people would, you know, people could say, oh, Josh, you would be such a great math teacher. Like, you're so ready for this. You've done all these things, but you you yourself could be like, uh, heck no, I, I am not fit to be a math teacher. You may be ready. You could be the smartest mathematician, but you may not be fit to teach because you you may find yourself in a position where you don't do well public speaking or you have a hard time with curriculum or whatever the case may be. And so fitness and readiness are very two different ideas. And so I appreciate that the board doesn't say, we want to see if you're fit. Like they don't question my call. They question if I'm ready to answer that call. Hmm. I'm wondering 
symbolism and tradition are certainly driving forces to like bring you toward ordination. Where do you think the tradition just of being ordained comes from? Like in the Bible, is it kind of drawing on the, like the Levites being the priests and being set aside and like they have all the rituals that set them up? I mean, like, so there's, there's a history to ordination that I am extremely unfamiliar with, but also part of me wonders in the same way, like you hear someone claim that they're like an accredited therapist or coach or something like that. And my first thought is like, well, by who and what gives them the right to accredit you or to ordain you, you know? So like ordained, when I think of the Latin verb, meaning to arrange or to appoint or to order. Uh, And it also comes actually from like the Hebrew word meaning to rely on. And from my understanding, Mm. it's also this idea of um, Elijah passing the mantle on to Elijah. Oh, okay. You know, like you are now ready. I'm relying on you. um, I'm appointing you to lead um, and to prophesy and to to shepherd. And I think that's partially where it comes from. Okay. So like when so like the stole is a it's like a symbol of receiving the mantle. Mm. And joining in that lineage mm-hmm. by accepting it on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, well, and then of course people can ask you to be the person who places the stole on them when they get ordained later. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So ultimately it sounds like we're making a a claim toward like God tells us to do this with our spiritual leaders mm-hmm. or asks us to. Yeah. What's interesting about you bringing that up just now is that like, I can totally see how like using that biblical story through the lens of Methodism, it totally feels like you are standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm sure. Like, mm, yeah. Right? Like, like you have like the history of Methodism and the, the structure and the institution. And like, uh, like I've heard people use this story in terms of like my end point is your launch pad. And I'm sure like mm-hmm. I'm sure it feels like that a lot. Oh yeah. Especially based on our like our appointment system where we're always replacing pastors before us and then there are gonna be pastors who replace us afterwards, you know? Mm-hmm. But I've also heard this story used to argue for a more less academic style of ordination and like call to leadership in particular because like Elijah and Elisha like Elijah didn't make Elisha go through seminary like he just handed him the mantle and I feel like Mm -hmm. like I've seen it used to contribute to like the (laughs) like the tenure track of a mentee to youth pastor to like on staff to (laughs) like head pastor like you just like rise through the ranks like without like what most people consider proper education or like you're just like raised through the system mm-hmm. in a way that's very unique, I would say. And it's interesting like to see that it's, it's just interesting, interesting to me that you brought that up just now because like I've totally seen it used like on the other end, like the more low church end. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause when I think about it, like Elijah didn't work his way through the ranks. Like he was educated. Like he went through processes in some way or fashion, you know, like 
it wasn't every day that like prophets would just be like, okay, like I really like you and you're a really cool guy and you've been following me around and I've, you've been here long enough that you're ready. Like, you, yeah, you can just take over. Like, mm. There's a lot that they had to do. Like there was a lot that they had to learn and to, and to discern for themselves. And it wasn't just like Elijah saying, all right, like let's do this. It was Elijah saw something in Elijah that was like, are you ready? Like, you can you can turn this away if you're not ready. Like, just because mm. I'm handing it to you doesn't mean you have to accept it. And so, I don't know. I think that's why I like that end of the story better. <laughs> like, that way of seeing the story. Do Does anyone in the, the Methodist church that you know of point to Jesus and Peter as, like, the first ordination, like the Catholics do? Um, yes. And that's just um individual theological understanding um sure. i don't think there's whole I'm, i mean sure there are probably whole churches that do believe that um but yeah there are some i don't know how i feel about it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> do other denominations do things in their ordination process that you wish methodists did oh that's a good question Nope. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Big fat nope. <laughs> nope. And the only reason I say that is because like the Methodist church is a connectional church. Um, and so while it has its flaws, of course, every church does, they are very intentional about community and just hearing other churches and like having friends in other denominations who are seeking ordination or pursuing their call. It is very so individualized to the point where it's like literally on their shoulders entirely and the support that they have is very limited whereas in the methodist church i feel like that's not the case um and that's that's also my personal experience i'm sure there have been individuals that that has not been their experience and i want to i want to recognize that as well you know there are individuals who are wanting to seek ordination in the methodist church and they are not allowed to um because of who they are and that's the mm. very that's the very thing that we're fighting about um, currently in the Methodist Church, which is hilarious to me um, because, you know, we have this idea of like open table, like all are welcome to the table, uh, but you can't actually serve the table if you are LGBTQIA plus individual. But you're welcome to come and partake like you're welcome to participate, um, but you can't be a part of the club to serve. Uh is basically like the argument that's mm. at hand. And so I know that there are people who so deeply love the Methodist church and they basically have a door slammed in their face um, because of this. And that's hurtful. Um, and so while my process has been great, sometimes very stressful, very sometimes, um, it was still great. And I am so appreciative of those who were a part of my reading team and those who are you know, in my ordinance class who are going to be ordained, hopefully with me. But I know that that's not the experience for everyone. And it's very hurtful. So just lifting that up for sure. Mm. It is really interesting, uh, like to hear you say that, like some of the, like some of the processes or like some of the forms or like evals that you've done, like it feels very obvious to you that there's like a very specific bent or like type of person that wrote those. And so of mm -hmm. course, like it's, like written more with them in mind just because of like the natural bias of the person who wrote them. You reminded me of like a very similar problem in like psychological testing. And it's like very rampant throughout every form of standardized test pretty much. But like 
a great example is the SAT. Like the SAT, uh, you are more likely to score very high if you come from a very specific type of individual and you're like, you're very likely to score in a lower percentile if you are a different type of person. And it's interesting. It's interesting to hear you say that in terms of like the ordination process, because like obviously Methodism is not the only type of denomination that doesn't um doesn't certify or ordain one or multiple types of people mm-hmm. or or prefer like there are more white pastors in the SBC than there are black pastors for instance like i'm sure, sure black pastors run into different like types of upward punching than white pastors do mm-hmm. and so yeah it's just it's, it's interesting to hear you like speak to that like on a personal level and it'll be interesting to like see what changes about that but also i can totally see how like some protestant groups have done away with those and maybe this was like more mm-hmm. subconscious but like i can somewhat see a pro to accessibility and like trying to make it a little bit more streamlined but i can yeah. also see the drawback of like well then you kind of don't weed out the people who are like doing it for the wrong reasons or like there's not as many opportunities to see the red flags or even the yellow flags of like things that like yeah. people may need to work on like mm. to your point about like methodists are like going through this conflict right now of like are they going to affirm LGBTQ clergy or not? Like, I can kind of see them being protective about that because the process does seem to allow them to have say in who should or should not be clergy. Like, mm-hmm. really, the bigger issue is enough Methodists in power see LGBTQ people as inherently sinful. Yeah. Because you wouldn't say the problem is like they have a say in who gets to be ordained or not, right? Yeah. And it's, well, it's, it's so interesting because we have individuals who are like part of that community who are so ready, like they're so ready and they would be wonderful and they're not, they can't. And then we have individuals who are and shouldn't. Mm. And it's one of those where it's like quality over quantity, folks. Like, yes, I know we have a shortage of pastors in the Methodist church. We have multiple pastors who are serving multiple charges and like it's ridiculous and people are retiring faster than joining. There's a labor shortage. Everyone's got to do their part. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And like, I totally get that. But quality, (laughs) like don't just fill a pulpit for the sake of filling a pulpit. Like that's a great way to kill a church, you know? Yeah, that's that seems... Maybe it's not all that unique, but like, I don't think Taco Bell is worried about hiring for quality, you know, like mm-hmm. that's very much a quantity game when they have a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about like, yeah, we need to hire someone. Is anyone else interested in a nine year process to be <laughs> ordained? <laughs> Can we get them started now? Like that doesn't help yeah. the short term problem. Okay. Yeah. And Steven, I like your, your tie to like industry because you're just making me think of how like bigger churches whether it's like the evangelical mega church or possibly like institutional denominations i'm sure there's like there's like a certain point where like a pastor is more a manager than a pastor versus like oh totally if you if you're like zoomed down in terms of scale and like the church can only budget for a pastor and maybe an admin person Mm -hmm. maybe and like everyone else is like volunteering Yes, I'm sure that there's like certain drawbacks to that in terms of like 
theological scope. And like, obviously that pastor can only speak to one perspective, but that pastor is only a pastor. That pastor is not a manager to the extent that like Mm -hmm. (laughs) the church with 20 people on staff, like someone's doing the managing over there and it's probably multiple people. (laughs) Yeah. And they're really more managers than anything else. That's a great point. Yeah. And sometimes it's not that explicit, but like I used to say that the campus pastors at my last church were more like franchise managers than Ooh. pastors. Mm. Ooh. Um, mm-hmm. Just being honest, that's how, like, that's what it looked like to me. And I was on staff with the guy, but right. yeah. like under him as the worship guy. So, but uh, to your point, Stephen, about uh, the fast food example, after you mentioned the Taco Bell example, my first thought was Chick-fil-A. Like, oh, nothing saying I endorse yeah. Chick-fil-A. I do eat there sometimes. But um, <laughs> Chick-fil-A, like, requires their franchise owners to put in so many hours. Mm-hmm. And, like, you definitely have to, like, be willing to put your arms in the fryers, as it were, to be able to, like, literally own that franchise. Yeah. And in some ways, I feel like the church, like, I feel like some churches do do that better than others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would argue Methodists do that well, given how often I, given how often we get the texts from Emily saying, hey, I might be late to recording. I'm doing a visitation at the hospital or I'm mm-hmm. meeting with a family in preparation for a funeral or it's a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. You know, like mm-hmm. she's very much integrated with the people in her community and doing things beyond like greeting them at the door on Sunday. Mhm. Yeah. Well, and it's funny cuz there's a lot of background work to my job, so like visitation, funerals, things like that. Um and a lot of people sometimes even in my church, you know, they say, "Oh, it seems like pastor doesn't do enough or like pastor's not doing this or that." Um like for instance, I had one lady, I guess, bring up a concern like I wasn't staying long enough after fel- after church for fellowship and it was because choir rehearsal is during that fellowship hour and I sing in the choir. Um, and so like you don't see me eating and drinking coffee in fellowship hour because I'm in choir practice for the church. Mm. Um, you know, and so there's just like a lot that goes unseen in my profession and I wouldn't change it. And it's like on Tuesday, like I'm going to go visit a member of my church who is incarcerated and I do every Tuesday I do a jail visitation with this individual. Mm. You know, like I I do the Cody Ministerial Association where all the pastors of Cody, whatever your denomination, like we all get together and we talk about what's going on in our church and the needs of the community and all that. Like I That's cool. There's a lot that happens and there's a lot that I do than just preach on Sunday morning, shake your hand and in the office, you know, like I do a lot outside of the office. Clearly, um, yeah. It's I'm a very busy woman and how I do that and have a family, sometimes I don't know. Then make a um, podcast. And make a podcast. I feel like I just kind of turn off a switch and I just kind of go into autopilot half the time. But, you know, it's whatever. Um, (laughs) But like there are plenty of other people who want to do that as well. Like there are people like that's what they long for. And yeah, yeah, I just I want to honor those people, too. You know, like if they know, they know. And yeah. So let's let's weed out those people that maybe shouldn't. But yeah. One thing I like about the call it like the, yeah, the path to ordination or something is I imagine it gives, it leaves very little room for you 
to let an attitude of like, I don't deserve this or like, Mm. it would be hard. I imagine to get away from an attitude of like, I literally signed up for this and I have been working on this for years, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm here because I wanted to be here and using that as an opportunity to remind yourself about like why you wanted to be here, even if you're just having a really bad day. Yeah. Oh gosh. Or dealing with really grumpy people. Yeah. And I, you know, and I remind myself like it is just today, like every day, like uh, every day of my job is not the same. Like my Tuesdays, I sure I may have visitation at 10 o'clock every Tuesday, but those visits are never the same. Um, And so I know it very much changes. uh, And I also contribute to that, like the effort that I put in impacts what like I reap what I sow, basically. Um, And so like, even if I am just having a bad day, like I know that's not the product of me like it's the circumstances around me that are making it difficult to do my job um but i can still attempt it with the best of my ability and know that this is what i want to do and if i didn't want to do this then i like i i wouldn't be here like i i would have told the board like thank you for the recommendation uh sayonara find a new pastor alex and i are gonna go like pursue other dreams or whatever but like this is what i want to do Um, And I'm in it. And there are no amount of bad days so far (laughs) that have turned me to pursuing anything else. um, Yeah. And if you had enough of those bad days, you have a structure within your denomination that you can go, you know, you can request a call with the bishop, right? We are allowed, and I actually learned this very recently, we are allowed up to six months of spiritual leave whoa and so what that means is like if basically if i was having a really bad day for a number of like months (laughs) and you know i brought it up to my ds and said i need i need some spiritual leave i am allowed up to six months of renewal time where the church has to fill the pulpit while i'm gone um, but I can use that time to basically like reevaluate, to re-energize, to pursue, um, wow. and to to get back up to snuff. Yeah, six months. Interesting. That's like full on. That's like sabbatical. Yeah. Yeah, that just shows commitment to clergy. Like they don't want us to burn out. They want us to be totally fit and ready like they want us to stay for the long run and so they want to take care of us you know so so i'm allowed four weeks including four sundays of vacation paid full-time i'm allowed a week of continuing education i'm allowed a week of personal spiritual growth i'm allowed two days for sabbath and for rest um for personal gain and you know the up to six months of of spiritual renewal like those are Big things. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Hmm. Well, congratulations. It's Thank it sounds like you. quite the process and I wouldn't go through it. I still have mixed <laughs> feelings about <laughs> pastors being a a career as it were, but I'm I'm happy Ooh. for you and I'm very glad that like you are nearing the end and that it is much more official and I'm also glad that you work for a denomination that cares about you and takes care of you. <laughs> Oh, and also thanks. It's <laughs> and like clearly cares about like putting people through a process that like make sure you're in the right spot. Yeah. I would love to do an episode about pastors and career. That's a hoofta. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. That's that's interesting. Do you have any thoughts, Stephen? Uh, no, I'll just echo my brother Josh and congratulate you again. Thank you. Yeah. Y'all will officially know if I'm voted on, by the way. I won't just like leave you hanging. Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah. But but today we celebrate as everything as nine years of blood, sweat and tears, sometimes literal, uh, comes to fruition. So that's crazy. So wait, Jesus made you were, you cry. wait, hold on. Nine years. Yeah, that's Jesus like our cry. freshman year of high school. You like you were doing these checklists when we were 15. Well, no, because I no, no, no. It was I started my junior year of high school. OK, so junior year and then into college and then seminary up until oh, now. Yeah. OK, I'm doing my math wrong. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I knew you when this started and then we didn't talk for like four years and now we're. You (laughs) knew me when I was starting this and I was not legit in your eyes. And it's this. Yeah. The junior year was the year that I didn't know what was going on anyway for most. No one knew what was going on. Yeah. (laughs) That was the year that Dixie uh, and I broke up. So I was just a sad boy for most of the year. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Those were dark times. The dark like, days of high school. Yeah. Hmm. But anyways, I I don't really have like a formal closing. I guess I just want to say thanks. Like, yeah. It, like y'all were a part of this process too. Like that's like, yes, I'm the one pursuing ordination, but I have so many people who are on this journey with me. And I, I think for me, that's a reminder of like, I'm not alone. You know, like so much of my paperwork was asking like my personal theology and everything. But then they would ask you questions about community and about like servant leadership and being in fellowship. And I'm just reminded like how deeply connected I am to so many people, people who have long gone, people who, you know, their time has come before it should have people who I no longer even talk to who are still so formative in my call. Mm. This has been a whirlwind journey. And I'm just so grateful for everyone, including you guys. Like, you guys are a part of this journey, too. That's cool. And this podcast is a part of this journey. Um, And so it's just wonderful to be in community and to go through this process, not alone. So thank you. Well, happy to be here. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. Speaking of the people we're getting to connect with, I just recently connected with the hosts of the podcast called The Worship Review with Tyler and Colin. And I went on, they got to interview me about Ravel and about my history as a worship leader. And then we, uh, together we reviewed the lyrics and the music to So Will I a hundred billion times by Hillsong. So be looking out for that episode coming out in the coming weeks. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to listen to that. I'm very excited. Um, Also, since we are nearing our 100th episode, we are challenging you to help us make this stretch goal of 100 reviews on Spotify and 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts. It is possible. We can do it. I believe in you. So thank you for listening and reviewing. Emily, can I close this out? (gasps) Yes. I just feel I just feel inspired to give you a toast. Um, You know, I I guess you could call it a blessing. I don't know if I would call it that um, since uh, you know my thoughts on blessings (laughs) since that episode. Um, But I would just I would I would just like to give you one. I think. Lift a glass. Lift a glass. I'm lifting my empty glass because I chugged that gin. I don't know if you can tell, but I chugged that. As am I. Well done. (laughs) Um, Emily, as you venture forth, may you always be growing, always be learning, always be ever expanding your view of humanity and God 
as you embark on this path of leadership and spiritual care. May you take care of yourself and the people around you. And may you always be learning how to love your neighbor as yourself. Cheers. Amen. Prost. Cheers. Hey gang, Keller Paulson here. I know what you're thinking. What's going on? Who is this guy? Am I right? Well, I'm the host of Keller's Couch. Now, Keller's Couch is an interview podcast where I, Keller Paulson, interview people I find interesting that are doing cool things in the community. But it's not just that. My friends at Slapstick Improv and myself, we also do some improv comedy and sketch comedy every other episode. So, if this tickles your fancy, why don't you scoot on down? Pop a squat on Keller's couch. Bye. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.